and welcome back to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. We're here again. Ah, uh, God, is this episode 85? Is it 86? I have no idea at the moment, but that rush to 100 is is on, really. I don't know when we're going to do 100. It might be August, it might be September, but I'd like to have done 100 in a year. So we're really, really pushing at the moment. But I'd also like a break, so I'm trying to work out when best to take that break. Right now, boxing feels a bit flat, so I wouldn't mind two or three weeks. Mm, probably about this time next week, so maybe two more episodes, and then I can take a break. Yeah, it's a well-deserved break, and I've definitely been on this, this hamster wheel for a minute, just churning out episodes. But I always said the reason I wanted to to go solo was to have the freedom to record or not record as and when I choose. And so these are the times you have to invoke that. It's also a fantastic time just to refresh while boxing's a bit flat. I think most promoters have played their hand already. They've given us their best shot. And as such, we can now say, right, we know what's coming up in the next five or six weeks. We're not overly excited, but we're not overly upset either. And so this is probably a good time to take a break. By the time the podcast comes back, there'll be a bucket load more to talk about. Like, for God's sake, even the Eddie Hearn IFL interviews just sound flat now, don't they? I don't know if anyone saw the latest one. But it was really interesting how they're able to talk about the, the Daniel Kinahan situation for about five or six minutes in an interview and not address any of the concerns that boxing fans have. Now, whether I have... I don't have a view on Daniel Kinnan. I don't have a view on MTK. You know I mean, however you want to make your money in this game, please go out there and make your money. I'm not, I'm not one to judge. But when there are legitimate questions that need answering, and when Eddie Hearn does need to be clear about what his policy is, I think Coogan dropped the ball majorly in not touching that, but then you understand why, because his chain gets yanked from elsewhere. And so it's understandable. It's also very interesting. I don't know if anyone's ever looked into this. I'm only going to focus on IFL for now, because as everyone understands, I've been social distancing for well over a year, right? So, you know, I don't care about the other side. But if you look at IFL, where's the money? That's what I'm going to say. Where's the money? You go on company's house, you do this, you do that. You look at the numbers and you go, there has to be more than this. This isn't enough to, to live on, if you, even if you're five years old. So where's the money? I'm not going to ask any more questions other than that. But then you understand why certain questions don't get asked. You understand why certain things don't happen on that channel. And you understand why, when it's convenient, it's entertainment for boxing fans. And when it's convenient, it's propaganda for people who need it but let me be clear because I don't want any more phone calls where I have to discuss what I say on this podcast I just don't anymore so let me be absolutely clear I do not care what your line of business is it's not my business right I'm not bothered I'm just saying sometimes you've got to be transparent and you've got to you've got to reveal who and what you are that's that's all I'll say don't, don't con the fans in thinking everything's above board and you're a neutral broker in some of these discussions when in reality you're not. And that's fine too. I'm not a neutral broker when I talk about guys like John Pilata. I'm not a neutral broker when I talk about my other friends in the sport. Like Isaac. 
like Greg Hacker. I'm not a neutral broker because I have a vested interest in them pursuing their agenda. And in this case, I think IFL have that too. And the honourable thing for IFL would actually be to avoid the issue and let publications without the conflict address some of these issues. And it's not just this one issue. I think it's more boxing issues in general. There are times IFL needs to just fall back because there's nothing worse than asking a question to deliver a misleading answer. You're better off not asking anything at all. That way you maintain your integrity. So, yeah, the last interview, not only, like, due to social distancing, the audio quality was terrible, but it was just, it was uncomfortable to listen to because you're almost taking boxing fans for idiots. And that's what I don't like. And the, the foundation of this boxing podcast has always been we will never treat boxing fans like idiots. And we will make sure that you understand that you are not idiots when it comes to the sport of boxing. It is every bit as simple as you think it is, no matter how much they try and complicate it in the media. Do not buy the bullshit is all I can say. But that's to, to reinforce the point. I think I've said it in another podcast. Daniel Kinahan's made things happen that otherwise wouldn't have happened. I don't mind having him in the sport because, quite frankly, he's not top of the list of the rogues that have been involved in boxing over the years. He's not. And so I have no issue with him. Um, from what I can see, in a boxing context only, now I don't live in Ireland, so I don't have that, that on-the-ground feel. In a boxing context, he's put money in people's pockets who otherwise would be minding drug deals now or be doing the door. That's how I look at it. And until someone else in boxing can make that change in people's lives, people are going to keep looking to MTK, and quite rightly too. Their duty is to make sure they can provide for themselves and their family. But just to step away from that and to zero in on, on what we have to look forward to. So Frank, as we expected he would, is the first guy to announce he's doing shows, mainly because he was smart enough to realise once you've got a venue secured, then it's just about putting a ring in there, really, and some cameras. So what better place to put a ring, some lighting and cameras than a TV studio? Unlike Eddie, who has these delusions of grandeur that you're going to have this big matchroom event in the back fucking garden like it doesn't rain in the United Kingdom, right? <laughs> doesn't really think these things through, does he? So the more I hear about this fight camp, the more I'm like, I can't see this happening because I can't see it being sunny for that long. At least Frank's mitigated his risk and he's announced fights. And the one that screams out and should scream out at everybody has to be Lerone Richards versus Umar Sadiq. Number one, I'm really, really happy for Umar because indirectly I've kind of lived through the career. Now, I'm not even talking about from fight one. I'm talking about before that. Who do I pick as a trainer? Um, do you think I made the right decision in terms of manager? All this sort of stuff. You know, we've, we've been on this path, I'm guessing, for about four years now. Now, if we go back to, it's over, oh yeah, it's over four years. So you go back to the ABAs of 2016. That's how far back we go when, I mean, he boxed at Ellsfield on a bill that we were on. And I didn't do his corner. I did Chelly's corner that time. But it's been a, a long and bumpy road 
some things have, he's tried, some things you know, work, some things haven't. But he's matured in the sport. And I think for what he's achieved in that short space of time, it's very impressive. Now, he still has to win. And Lerone Richards is not an easy fight, if we're being brutally honest. Now, the key thing when I do stuff like this is not to give away the secrets, right? But anyone with two eyes can see certain things. Number one, what we're seeing is all the sports that are coming back, the gap isn't as wide between the best and the worst. It seems to be pretty even at the moment. Now, unless you're an Arsenal fan, then you'll realize that they, they're still on the beach, unfortunately. So, whereas before, if you'd asked most people in the press, so pre-lockdown, Umar Sadiq versus Lerone Richards, most people would have said, that's an easy win for Lerone. That's, that's, just a, that's just a run out before he fights bigger fish, or fries bigger fish, I should say. But this is to discount what happens to a boxer when they don't box. You become mortal again. Like, the human body's not designed to to be in fight mode day in, day out, and especially if it doesn't have that immediate threat in front of it. So what happens when you're not training to that same intensity, you're not training with the same stimuli and the same level of threat, is your body starts to roll everything back. Now, if the last time you fought was August or September last year, and you haven't fought in 2020, you've rolled all the way back, and mentally you won't feel it, but your body knows it's not ready. So the challenge you have when these fights come that is as early as they're coming after the lockdown now is, can you get from where you are now back to your previous level? And the body responds differently for different people, right? Some people will get there quickly. They're fast responders. All it takes is a couple of sparring sessions and they're good. Some guys have to build it up over weeks and months. And if you don't know who you are, on fight night, you might realize you're out of your depth. So what I'm saying is, the perceived gap between Uma and Lerone may not necessarily be there. And if that's the case, and it's a battle of two equals, we're in for a hell of a night. Because both men, from a boxing perspective, have a lot to offer. Um, you've got Lerone, technically sound, Looks like he's pretty clever in the ring. Can do a lot of those good things. And then you've got Uma, who came at it from a different perspective, first and foremost. But secondly, has that offbeat rhythm, which I don't think anyone can really figure out because it's never the same between two fights. There's always a... Just when you think you've got his tempo, he'll give you something different. So you can't even prepare for that. You know, I think it's easier to find sparring to mimic Lerone than it is to find sparring to mimic Uma. So then it comes back to that question, who can get back up to their level quickest? Who's been the most active? Who's had the most fights? Who's been through this cycle the most times in the last 12 months? I think you know the answer to that. So we come back to this point. This fight's not a foregone conclusion. This is a really competitive fight because all the variables are kind of up in the air. And it's really about who zeroes in from now till fight night. You know, I'm obviously Team Sadiq because, I mean, that's my friend. I like Lerone. I respect Lerone. I'm not as close to Lerone. It was easier when he was with Ibox, but I don't know who's going to train him now that he's back. Hopefully he can reconcile with Ibox, but I, I don't. I'm not close to that situation. 
But this is the time you need what is familiar to you. This is not the time to be experimenting where you need to get back up to your previous level. But I think that's a hell of a fight. That's a hell of a statement from Frank. Because what Frank's assumed, and I'm going to call it the, the, the Bella Italia factor here. So we're a few days into the reopening of non-essential retail outlets, right? So we can just go shopping now. For the record, don't do Westfield. Don't, don't, don't do Westfield. Don't do the high street. You're just having to queue up. And a lot of times, it's not even fucking worth it. It's like being, you know what I mean? It's, it's like the days of jumping jacks and fucking lava and ignite and, you know, fat Freddies. And you're all those random nightclubs where they, they just make you queue up so people would think it was busy. And so it's not a great retail experience. But all that money we've been saving over the lockdown is getting spent now. Yeah? We're buying new trainers. We're buying athleisure wear. I mean, we're buying all of this stuff. We're buying stuff we don't even need because we just want that, that, that endorphin rush of buying stuff again. Being able to hold it, take it to the till, go through that process. Because what, we're, what we really want is normality. Now, if I'm Bella Italia, I'm watching people basically blowing their, blowing their money. And I'm thinking, that could have been me. That money should have been coming to me, but I'm still shut down. And so the worst nightmare is, by the time they open up, we're all fatigued, like... God, I spent so much money shopping that. <sighs> and so now I don't want to eat out. So Frank's smart. Frank's like, let me take that, that desire to watch British boxing and let me drain it before Hearn even gets a chance. Because even if Frank's shows are, are garbage, he'd have drained all that energy. Now Eddie's got to come with something better. It puts pressure on Eddie Hearn to deliver a fight that's better than what we've seen already. It's a clever move by Frank. That psychology is really, really smart. And it goes to show that the old school always wins because he understands how people operate. Like, look, I don't, I don't mind watching Woodstock versus whoever he's fighting. I, I don't mind watching David Adelaide. Just let me see that for myself. Let me get a sense of where British boxing is. And so... Don't be surprised if you see this whole fight camp thing rescheduled and it just gets done out of a Sky soundstage or maybe Shepparton, something like that. But there's a wider discussion and there's, there's something that says, do we need to be watching Boxing Live anymore? That's a real question. And I want you to just, just work with me on this one for a second, please. Just work with me. Imagine where you live right now. I'm guessing the average size of the TV amongst the audience here is somewhere north of 40, 45 inches, right? Um, what's my mind? 65. And I know there are people with bigger. There's some people with 75s. I can seat 10 to 12 people in my place comfortably without buying any additional furniture. If I bought additional furniture, I could get 15 to 18 in comfortably. I can have a watch party here for a big fight. Even if they bump up the pay-per-view to, what, 30 quid? Fine. Pay your 30 quid. Everyone chips in a five or whatever. We get some booze in. We get some food in. And I can watch boxing with people I respect, people I like, people I know understand the sport. I can watch it in, in the ideal social bubble. I'm not getting beer spilt on me. I haven't got some fat guy telling me that he used to be semi-pro in 1979. I haven't got 
you know, the, the Frank Warren risk that the football fans kick off. I have zero risk, all the benefit. My screen's big enough that I can get a sense of it. The audio is good enough that I can get that full effect. And I'm with the people I would have gone with to the show anyway. But we're all, we're all about 100 quid better off. So now my question is, why would I even watch it? Why would I watch it live? You're giving me undercard fights I don't care about. There's all that awkward point where they're playing Steps or they play the Macarena or they play Sweet Caroline. All the stuff that irritates because all you really want to do is watch the boxing. Right? All this stuff because the events are set up for TV. So if the event's set up for TV, why am I watching it live? Now, six months ago, you guys listening would have laughed at me and said, come on, watching it live is the only way. But you've had three months away where you've realized, actually, I haven't missed it as much as I thought I would. And the longer they keep crowds away from boxing events, the more you'll get used to watching it on TV. When you expand your social bubble, you'll bring your mates around to watch the boxing, the football, whatever it is. It's not long. Like, if they don't allow crowds back into venues before the end of the year, we're all going to get used to the concept of watch parties. Then we're going to say, well... I haven't had to faff around on StubHub trying to get a good ticket. I'm not up in the gods basically watching two pinpricks run around in a big white square. I'm not getting jostled. I'm not having to say to people, excuse me, while I go to the toilet. None of that. The experience of watching boxing at home will start to surpass the experience of watching boxing live, particularly as screens get bigger and audio gets better. And this is an existential threat that boxing has never dealt with because they've always assumed boxing fans are stupid enough that they'll just keep paying. My thing is stop paying. Stop paying for things you don't like. Stop paying to go to York Hall to watch one bum against another. Stop paying to go to the copper box to watch prospects in fights that they, should, they shouldn't even be having. Stop paying to go to the O2 to watch an undercard of people you don't give two shits about. Stop. And people say, ah, oh, but that's how boxers make their money selling tickets. Boxers will make their money full stop. If we go to a, uh, a home watching model, the pricing will change and the fighters will be compensated accordingly. Boxing is an international sport now. It's an international business. You know? And so we need to start working out what we enjoy doing. And I, I do, I think this idea, like, they created this notion of the social bubble. I think that's where boxing could head, is the social bubble way of consuming it, where you just get to watch it with your mates, you get to talk, you get the preamble, and then on fight night, all you get are the fights. No one wants all that other BS. You know, you just... I just think the, the model's moving away from, from boxing. Number one, a lot of people are going to have lost their jobs, or the furlough would have put a dent in some finances. No one wants to be spending 200 quid on a ticket for an Eddie Hearn show or a Frank Warren show. I don't think so. And I think all that will happen is the trend in America of declining audiences is going to start hitting the UK. And if you're not preparing for that now, you'll be a dinosaur in a year's time. Because if you remember, normally around this time of year, well, let's look forward six weeks or so, we're crowning new Olympians. There are new boxers we get excited about because it's the first time we get to see the amateurs en masse 
competing, showing us what they're capable of. Four years ago, Joshua Boatsy stepped up. Lawrence Okoli stepped up. We fell in love with, with the McCormacks, you know. We fell in love with a lot of guys. Um, Ramirez, Michael Conlon. You know, a lot of people stepped up. And so when you look at that and you don't have that in 2020, we're just going to go through a whole summer and just go, well, who's next? That's, that's more my issue is the things we normally look forward to around this time, we're not going to get. So we, we're actually just going to have to cycle through and work out how we re-engage with boxing. But it can't be business as usual. And I challenge everyone that's listening here to remember that. It cannot be business as usual. You cannot be getting to 12-0 and 0, still fighting Lithuanians and Latvians. You just, well, just logistically, you can't do that anymore. And so let's, let's push for that change. You know, credit to guys like Al Siesta, who's doing his Cold Wars in, I think it's in Belarus. And he's just taking the fighters out there. Go and have your fights, come back up. And I think that's a good idea. Now, how you monetize that, how you make a profit from that is a different discussion. But I like the fact that Al, Al's playing with the model. So respect to him. And let's try and support that. If we're happy with what he's producing, let's support that. Let's talk it up. Let's get some shine on him too. But if we're not happy... Let's also make our feelings known because that's how things get better. So we need to update the, the Dillian White situation because I love situations where what looks rational individually, when you look at it in the bigger picture, looks like potential suicide for one person or another. So just to set the scene, Dillian's supposed to have his mandatory shot at the WBC heavyweight title I think it's like February 21st, 2021, something around that time. Now, the problem with that is it's not a fight that Fury wants. It's not a fight that really makes sense for boxing fans right now when we're so close to undisputed. But it's a fight that Dillian's waited for for so long that he actually deserves it. There's no question about that. There's Whatever you want to say, when you're, when you're that top name on the list, at some point, just the notion of fair play indicates that you should get that fight. And I think he's earned his spot. Yeah, Never took an easy fight, doesn't duck it, doesn't swerve it, gets stuck in. That's, that, that, that's the Dillian I know and recognize. And if your promoter's really batting for you, that's what should be happening. But I find it interesting that that Hearn does this, and like in the IFL interview, he was very bullish about look at how much money we've spent getting Dillian up the rankings with the with the WBC. Now, when he says how much money we've spent, you start to wonder, right? Because obviously there's sanctioning fees, but is there something more to this? Is there more money that's been spent? Is the question. Use boxing history tells you there probably is, and it might not be in cash terms; it might be in kind. Who knows? But we've we've seen we've seen the Suleiman family in in the UK a lot, showered with love and attention, positive press and so forth. And that doesn't come cheap. That really doesn't come cheap. But this, the problem is, there are other promoters treating them equally as well. So you end up, you know, being played in the way that Hearn's been played. And he's been played horribly. And the real victim in all of this is Dillian White. And here's why. 
Fury moving up to franchise champion means he's immune from mandatory challenges. It means he is totally immune from losing that status. You can never lose that status. Now, does Fury deserve that sort of status based on what he did with Wilder? Absolutely. As fans, is that what we want to see? No. But we understand why he has to do it because there are fights that he needs to make happen for the good of the sport and for the good of his legacy. And sadly, Dillian doesn't figure into that yet. And what it also does is it puts pressure on Dillian because the young guys are coming through now and he's going to have to start defending his position against those. But this is where you want your promoter to be speaking up for you. But now let's look at your promoter, Eddie Hearn. And let's say, what, what's Eddie's incentive? Eddie's incentive is to make that undisputed fight as early as possible. Right? Ideally, you'd make it early next year, subject to crowds being allowed in. Even if crowds aren't allowed in, if the money's right. So for that to happen, Dillian's mandatory shot needs to go away. So the way that goes away, considering that Dillian's now taking legal action, so... You know, maybe that belt's in stasis for now. Maybe the belt is, you know, they'll have some kind of injunction. You can't fight for this belt until this has been resolved and so forth. Perhaps it's the case that in Eddie Hearn's interests, Fury moves up to franchise champion. That makes the fight for undisputed, as long as Mauricio Suleiman signs off on that. That's the move you make, right? Because that's the bigger fight. So then how do you do that to clear the way for Fury Joshua to happen twice while at the same time bang the drum for Dillian to get his mandatory shot as a matter of course? Bearing in mind that you're trying to tell the IBF that we'd like Kubrat Pulev to not have to enforce his mandatory. So Hearn's torn here because if the IBF enforce their mandatory, then the fight has to happen like now or Joshua gets stripped, but it can't happen now. So you can't say, oh, WBC, enforce your mandatory. This doesn't make sense. It's not logical. WBC, enforce your mandatory, but IBF, please don't enforce your mandatory yet because of COVID. And this is where Hearn's now caught between his two biggest cash cows. Because he, he doesn't do this. Because remember, he was, he was complaining about the Devin Haney situation and how it stopped the Devin Haney v. Lomachenko fight happening. But that was just Hearn trying to get money and subscribers on his platform. Now Devin Haney has to fight someone like a Luke Campbell. Quite frankly, who wants to watch that fight? I don't. I don't think you do. It's neither here nor there to me. So, so this franchise game has hurt him before. And he should have known this before. And that's why he should have been moving Dillian down another route. Because the WBC already told him, we would rather keep this belt in America. We'd rather keep the green belts in America. We make more money here than we do in the UK. And Dillian's paid a heavy price for trusting Eddie Hearn. I wouldn't have trusted him. As soon as Devin Haney lost the chance to fight Lomachenko, I'd have said, I knew Dillian was next, in fact. I knew Dillian was next. Because that fight doesn't make sense to anyone. Now imagine what happens. The WBC say Tyson Fury is now franchise champion. We've got this belt here that someone needs to fight for. We're going to give it to Dillian, but you've got to defend it as against the mandatory 
on, on February 20, whatever it was. You've got to defend it against, it could be Luis Ortiz, right? It could be Luis Ortiz. Jesus, what a way to have to defend your belt. It could even be Deontay Wilder if he doesn't take the third fight. Now it leaves Dillian cruelly exposed. Because none of Dillian's options now look attractive. Best case scenario, you get to fight Fury. That's the fight you're unlikely to win. Worst case scenario, you fight Ortiz. That's a fight that will take years off your career. Equally bad is you fight Deontay Wilder. That could take years off your career. Pincered. In a way, and that's not fair. But Hearn hasn't got an incentive in changing that because to change that would put his guy Joshua at risk. And here you have the dilemma. And here's where you realise Hearn cares about nothing other than himself. But I don't know what you do if you're Dillian. I don't think the legal challenge does anything for you. I think the legal challenge basically just means they'll move the... They'll just move the goalposts. So, yes, you, you're chasing Wilder before, then you're chasing Fury, all fights that would have made you upwards of $5 million, pounds, whatever you want to call it. You put pressure on the WBC, you're now fighting Luis Ortiz, where you have to carry the fight. You have to carry the promotion. Another, another fight where you're fighting a non-English speaker. So you would have had that. And it's, it's quite a brutal run that Dillian's been on. Like He's still got Povetkin next, hasn't he? So you go from Povetkin, then they say, right, you know, we've emailed you the WBC belt. You're now the champion. You've got to defend against Luis Ortiz. I can't imagine anything worse. But then, paradoxically, Dillian's building the strongest record of any active heavyweight. Right? That's just the reality of it. In terms of risk-taking, fights where he wasn't guaranteed to win, yeah, he's up there. And I really respect that. But he should have signed with Al because Eddie's not doing anything for him right now. And it's a shame to see, because I think Dillian could have had a, a stellar career. I think he could have upset a few guys. But Eddie's just kind of palming him off, fight this guy, fight that guy, while he protects Joshua. And I'll tell you who is watching this with keen interest. Alexander Usyk. Usyk will be smart to say, I'm never stepping aside and I will enforce my mandatory next year. Pulev, not stepping aside. So look at the pressure now that Joshua's under. You could risk it all against Fury. Even if you get through that, you might have to risk it all against Usyk. And that might, and the longer you leave it, the better he'll get at the weight. Then there's the young guys coming through, the Dubois and the Hergoviches, you know, and the Ditchkos and, you know, these big lumps. And people talk, people don't even talk about Jalilov, but as, a, as, as he keeps improving, he becomes more of a threat. So all of these guys are now coming together to say, we also want in on this action. And so there's a small window in which all the stuff we want to happen as fans needs to happen, because if it doesn't, guys like Dubois are going to upset the apple cart. And then we're back to long, slow, pointless build-ups. And this is what kills boxing. And I think this is why in five years' time we won't be talking about boxing the way we are now. Because fans love things that lead to a defined conclusion.
Champions League, World Cup, Olympics. That's why they're massive, massive sports. The Premier League's huge for that reason. Promoters dragging this out in their own interest. This is all the Dillian White thing. It's just about what's best for Eddie Hearn. It's all about what's best for Dillian. And that's why his fans were getting turned off. Because we've been lied to so often. Dillian's been lied to so often. And now it's an absolute mess. So for me, I think the cleanest thing right now is they tell us how much this Joshua versus Fury thing is going to generate. Pay Wilder a couple of mil to sit down. Pay Pulev a couple of mil to sit down. Pay Dillian a few mil to sit down. Dedicate 15 million of that budget to keeping all of these guys quiet. Once that fight's over, everyone jump in. But I don't see that happening because it doesn't benefit the power brokers in all of this. And that's the real shame. I do have a question, though, in terms of the heavyweights. And I guess I'm repeating myself. But I always wonder why we never see Andrew Ruiz sweating in these pictures of him exercising. Now, we know he's massively overweight. So if ever someone should be dripping in sweat, it should be him. Yet he always looks pristine. Which makes me wonder, once again, what the hell's going on with this guy's career? We're involved just being around Lewis. He sensed weaknesses about him. He studied him. Fought the fight a thousand times in his head. Oh, what an uppercut from Lewis! Absolute peach! But Klitschko took that too without going down. So I just played that clip because, as I saw earlier today, Sky Sports was celebrating the anniversary of Lewis versus Klitschko. And I think that fight's become interesting as I've got older because when I was, when I was younger and I saw that fight, I remember thinking it was a massive injustice that, that Vitali had had his chance taken away, yada, yada, yada. And I think with every year I've watched that fight, my respect for Lennox Lewis increases because it shows how special a fighter Lennox Lewis actually was. So if we go back, and I, I remember this because I was like, I think this is around the time I just finished up at university. And the year before had been when Lennox had beaten Mike. So he defeated Mike Tyson. Uh, I think he stopped him in the eighth round. Although I always think it was the fourth, but it was the eighth round. And you're always surprised Mike was tough enough to take a beating for that long. And weirdly enough, the discussion was, you know, for Lennox, I think Lennox had two options. You either fight Chris Bird, who was too small for Lennox. Like, I, I think Lennox would have knocked him out in under five rounds. Or you rematch Mike and make, you know what I mean, that would have made more money and would have cemented his legacy. But I think as, as Mike has said subsequent to that, you know, really spiritually, Mike was done. I think he realized he had no hope in hell of beating Lennox and it would have been probably even worse of a massacre after that. And so he limped through to the end of his career and that was the end of Mike. But really Mike Tyson's career ended after that Lewis win, uh, that Lewis defeat, sorry. And so Lennox probably didn't want to face, oh, quite rightly, Chris Bird. But weirdly enough, like, like I've said, Chris Bird, one of these guys who I think he won Olympic gold at like 75 kilos and ended up winning a world title at heavyweight. So, you know, you have to respect the skill set. You have to respect the toughness. You know, Chris Bird was a special athlete, but Lennox was on a different level.
That's the sort of fight you don't really need in your career. So then that kind of left the WBC mandate. I think it was like Kirk Johnson, who like half you guys listening don't even know who Kirk Johnson is. Feel free to box wreck him. And so it was get rid of Kirk Johnson, but Lennox knew ultimately he'd have to face Vitaly Klitschko at some point. It would just so happen that June 2003 wasn't when it was meant to happen. So Lennox, who hadn't boxed for a year, had probably been enjoying the, the, the proceeds of defeating Mike Tyson and cementing yourself as the best heavyweight of your generation by some distance and one of the five greatest heavyweights to ever lace on a pair of gloves. And so you get this guy, Vitaly, six foot eight, heavier, heavier, hungrier, athletic, you know, solid skill set, you know, vulnerable to the chin, perhaps. You know, we saw him get knocked out by Pele Reed in, in his kickboxing days. But Vitaly's Vitaly, and we know what Vitaly went on to become. So Vitaly was, was no mug at this point. And so, I think if I remember when the fight was stopped, the judges had Lennox behind by a couple of rounds. So I think it was four rounds to two. And I don't think that was wrong. But if you'd looked at the momentum of the fight, I think Lennox had figured him out. Heading towards the end of it. Those, those right uppercuts Lennox was able to land and the body shots that Lennox was starting to land showed how versatile Lennox was. Because Lennox suddenly realised, and this is what Wilder didn't do. And so th this is why boxing's instructive through the generations. Lennox was smart enough to realise he was giving away height and reach. And so all Lennox did was work him on the inside, chop to the body, look for that uppercut, keep hurting him. Because, you know, once he'd cut Vitaly, it was just a matter of, for me, it was just a matter of when the fight was stopped. And could Vitaly stop Lennox before the ref stopped him? And so I think, was, was it the fair, fair decision? Yeah, of course. You know, remember people were complaining that Fury was allowed to carry on against Otto Wallen with the cut that he had. So I guess, well, precedents, you know, never apply consistently, which is a shame, but a cut of that magnitude should normally be allowed to, to stop a fight because otherwise you risk doing permanent damage to the vision and also to the underlying structure of the eye. But that fight was important because it, it showed that Lennox kind of dealt with the best of his generation and now we know that Lennox had dealt with the best of the next generation because Vitaly was easily the dominant heavyweight of the post-Lennox era. I know people say Vladimir did more, but Vitaly was the dominant heavyweight of the post-Lennox era. And so it just amplifies Lennox's greatness. It's just one of the things that was just like a reminder I had today that this was the anniversary and just of how I felt watching that fight because my perspective has changed completely before I was like, ah it's a robbery it's an injustice you know let let Vitaly go out on his shield but then I watched the fight back as I now understand the sport in greater detail and I go what a performance the number of adjustments Lennox made to then be in the ascendancy you know from round five onwards and then you wonder like could Lennox have kept that up for 12 rounds well who, who are we to doubt that Lennox could do that so I know I thought that was fascinating and if you, if you do get a chance to watch that, I think it's a good fight to watch in terms of being able to identify the adjustments that Lennox makes round after round. Because at first you couldn't get used to Vitaly's awkward style because if you, if you remember, Vitaly'd have his right hand kind of in front of his face and he'd be swinging his left hand quite low 
and then he just shoots it up. And there was no real way of timing that. And so Lennox realized that he wasn't going to win the battle of the jab. So Lennox started to get inside, rough him up, you know, intimidate, and let Vitaly know he was in there with greatness and how badly did Vitaly want it. And being brutally honest, Vitaly's spirit and will started to flag when he realized he might not get Lennox out of there because Lennox has a chin of iron. Like, Jesus, some of the shots that he took, I mean, that's what cements greatness. But that's a good fight, then feel free to go and watch that. I just wanted to sign off by, by talking about Andrew Selby. And it's, it's difficult to know where to start because he's announced his retirement from boxing. He's, what, 31 going on 32? And when you think of Andrew Selby, you think of the success his brother had, and then you realize that Andrew is probably more talented. And I think... Andrew is a reminder why you shouldn't stay amateur too long. And a lot of people have suffered from this. And another example on a smaller scale is someone like a Miles Shinquin. Guys who stayed amateur too long and in their development years, they weren't exposed to the professional training regimen. If someone says to me, what year should Andrew Selby have gone pro? 2012. Instead, he waited. He did the Commonwealth Games where he got bombed out by, by the Scottish kid, whose name I can't remember, and then he turned pro. Now, I think he probably turned pro 2015, 2016. And by that point, you've kind of passed by your development years. You know, we forgot how old Andrew Selby was in 2012, never mind 2015, 2016. And so he never really had that chance to, to do his development years in the pro ranks. And when you're a small guy, that's exactly what you want to do. And so we'll always have this image of Andrew Selby based on how skilled and how talented he was and never based on any meaningful fights that he had as a professional. But I almost forced it aside because it seems that like he was just wrestling with demons probably his whole life. And then I think the loss of his mum in 2017, probably that was it. Probably the energy to pursue boxing had probably gone at that point. And that's, that's probably a tough thing to realise because... He, he lost the fight. I can't remember who he fought. He fought the Mexican kid in, in Mexico, actually. And at altitude, and I remember speaking about this at the time, saying, why on earth would anyone who managed Andrew Salby send him out there without any acclimatization or anything like that? And so he, he was defeated. And so Andrew never won a world title, although his ability suggests that he should have done. Bear in mind, he lost in 2012 to... Robes Lee Ramirez, who then went on to beat Shakur Stevenson to win gold. So that's a two-time gold medalist. There's no shame in that. And I, I do. I feel bad for Andrew Selby because I think Andrew Selby was as talented as a boxer can be. And he stayed amateur too long. He was badly advised as a professional. And basically, they just torched his career. And I just wish him all the happiness in retirement because you know he falls into that Fred Evans category of just guys where you think, how did it go so wrong? But I wish him all the best in retirement. I hope he finds peace and happiness. What, a, what an absolute star as an amateur. World Boxing Series, World Series of Boxing, sorry. And he was just able to deliver. Like tournament after tournament. But I just think after 2012, he was probably never the same guy. And he should have just turned pro then. That's a real shame. But that's a lesson. In terms of people, and people don't really understand what the difference is between amateur and pro. You can be a successful amateur 
training three days a week. Yeah, and and I've seen it happen. Even at international level, you can be successful training three days a week. As a pro, no chance in hell. You can't switch off. You couldn't have a job and be a professional boxer and expect to get to the top. You can't be a professional boxer and expect to get to the top without a solid team behind you. All of these things complicate matters. Like professional boxing is so brutal on your self-esteem. It's so brutal on your lifestyle. It's so brutal on the relationships you have with people. And most of the time, the hard part about being a professional boxer is managing the things outside the ring. And that's why people love amateur boxing. Because you only really had to deal with three three three-minute rounds and then you could go back to your normal life. When you're a professional boxer, the ring and outside the ring is all your professional life. And a lot of people struggle with that. We've seen it numerous times. And I think Andrew Selby was just another one of those examples. So my tip for you guys, get the right people around you and you will not get shafted. Get the wrong people around you. And hmm, you know the rest. So let's, let's just close out as Father's Day today. So listen, happy Father's Day to all you guys, you know, doing that hard work of being a parent and doing it the right way. You know, big respect. I haven't crossed that milestone yet, but I'd like to feel that when I do, I'll be a good dad. But, you know, we'll sign off with probably the most entertaining father and son duo in boxing. You're the best fighting man I've ever seen in my whole entire life. I was too strong for him, Dad. I was 40 pound heavier than him. What a masterclass. Everyone was thinking, what's he doing at this high weight? 272 pounds. I was 19 strong 40, like, solid. They look good on the telly. It was the best I've ever, ever seen in my life. You couldn't, you couldn't write it. You've done it. You and your equal Muhammad Ali's achievements, but let me tell you, son, it was some performance. I'm still shaking. Listen. Take your care. Love you, son. Well done. Take the best of care. God bless you. Thank you.